0: My wife and I watched the Academy Award-winning uh, movie Apollo 13 again a couple of weeks ago for like the umpteenth time, of course. Um, it's a 20-year-old movie uh, released all that time ago recounting the story of those three astronauts you know, who in the spring of 1970 had that ill-fated mission to the moon, only to be stopped by a catastrophic failure uh, that resulted in their ship being almost completely disabled. Um, Some of you were there to remember the whole affair going down and how the world just seemed to stop uh, to see how these men were going to survive, but it's just a gripping story and I'm completely fascinated by it. Um, And it really doesn't matter how many times I see it. Um, At the end of the movie, they make you wait for like these four painful minutes to see if their desperate space mission is going to end in the astronaut's death. Cameras kind of zoom in as you lose radio contact on all the expectant faces of the family members just waiting to see if their loved ones are going to make it. And then, suddenly, you hear the crackling of the radio. Tom Hanks' voice comes over and says, Hello, Houston, this is Odyssey. It's good to see you again. And everybody erupts in cheers. And I dissolve into a puddle. (laughs) Every time. And so I've gotten to this age where I've started wondering about why it is that some of the pop culture that I expose myself to affects me in the way in which it does, while other things don't. And I've come to believe that there's at least two reasons why Apollo 13 moves me the way in which it does. The first reason is that there's something about the fact that the story is true that just makes it kind of, um, it, it changes the experience of watching it. The stakes just feel higher when you know that you're looking at people who actually did these things and that my parents you know, watched this whole thing go down and that it's part of our nation's heroic space exploration timeline. The actual events that shape who we, who we are as a people just are more compelling. It's the reason I think why they put that disclaimer at the beginning of a lot of movies based on a true story. We perk up when we see that, don't we? But there's a second reason I think that this movie moves me, and that is that there's just something powerful about watching certain kinds of stories. Where everything is going wrong for these poor astronauts, nothing is going their way, it's like death is almost all but certain. But suddenly, against all odds, victory and joy is snatched out of the jaws of defeat and misery. I've always loved those kinds of stories, and I suspect that you do too. It turns out that uh, one of the greatest 20th century uh, storytellers, J.R.R. Tolkien, understood this thing and actually created his own word to describe it. He called it a catastrophe. E-U-catastrophe. Here's what he says. He says, I coined that word. He said, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy and then brings tears. And I was led to the view that it produces a peculiar effect because it's a sudden glimpse of capital T truth. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. <laughs> Look, I believe that the rush that sort of takes over you when you watch stories like Apollo 13, or even one that's simply told well, is because of a fundamental constitution of the human heart. Our hearts leap at those stories. We love to be surprised like that. Why else does TBS keep showing this movie, right? Clearly people want to watch it again and again. Why? Because the theme of the passage that we've just read (laughs) comes to us as a huge surprise. The narrative is sort of suggesting us that nobody saw this coming. It is the last thing people would have thought that would have happened when you put together all of their expectations for what they thought Jesus was really about. And what happened in the previous few days is sudden. It's out of nowhere. There's victory and vindication snatched out of the jaws of defeat and humiliation. Tolkien goes on to say this, And I concluded by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story ever told. And it produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, that produces tears because it's so qualitatively like sorrow. Because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are really one, reconciled as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. Look, this is the crescendo of the story that Luke has been telling us throughout his gospel. And we know that not, we know that this is the fact, not because of the drama of the story, but because the resurrection of Jesus was the fixation of the earliest Christians. In other words, there was no more central theme to the preaching of the early apostles, like in the book of Acts. If you read all the sermons that the apostles preached, it was all about the resurrection. So clearly what happened on this Sunday morning was utterly transformational for the earliest of Christians and thereby the most deeply part of the compelling ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And so therefore, we've kind of reached the peak. We're at the zenith. Everything was headed to this. And so if this story is going to grab us the same way it did the original hearers, I want to submit to you that we need to see in it the same things that compel me about Apollo 13. That number one, the resurrection is true. And number two, that the resurrection is moving two things. Number one, let's start with the fact that the resurrection is true. You know, it's interesting as you dive into uh, sort of cinema in modern cinema, how much we've seen a growth in documentary form in film in our day. You know, In the last decade or two, motion pictures are making more and more films that deal with real life situations. I was reading an article a number of months ago in The Economist where someone was, see, it was, it was explaining that the Cannes Film Festival has nearly doubled its amount of documentaries that have come to be sub, uh, submitted there. And when the author was speculating as to why, he said, you know, there's too much fantasy in cinema today. Uh, Audiences want stories that feel authentic. And so I I remember it reminded me of a class that I took when I was in college in documentary film that was talking to us about how a documentary form sort of creates a sense of um, an air of credibility because of the, the realness factor. Something takes on more power when you know that it's real. So here's my premise this morning. (laughs) Jesus' resurrection story has the same feel. Indeed, the source documents that we have of his resurrection are reported in a way that can only be seen as a true story. Everything that you see from how these stories are told to the historical evidence surrounding the event establishes this as one of the central tenets of the Christian faith, that Jesus of Nazareth was dead And he was resurrected. Now look, it's important to establish this. Because when the sort of skeptic, skeptical, scientific, enlightenment mind is presented with what we believe to be truth about Jesus' resurrection, our culture just writes these things off as myth. Y'all, even this morning, there was an op-ed in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof, who was interviewing the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. And the claims that were made about the resurrection by a seminary president were ghastly. Saying things like, oh, it's obviously just a myth. Heroic tales sort of created by people who, you know, uh, uh, were looking for a way to honor their fallen master. When the truth is we need to remember just the spirit of resurrection. Look, it's a way of people sort of trying to picture these people trying to honor what, what their fallen master did, but now don't have anymore. But this is the problem. There's nothing about these accounts that look like they're presented as a myth. It's not presented to us as a hoax. It doesn't look like anything that someone would sort of uh, create from a bunch of wishful thinking disciples who were disappointed. So look, over the years, I've been compiling a list of, of people from very helpful authors who have helped me work through uh, this question about the, about the resurrection. Uh, men like Richard Bauckham, uh, N.T. Wright especially, uh, and Tim Keller to some degree, They've been really invaluable, so I want to throw out six ideas, six things that come out of this text that show us the ring of the documents and why they showed it to be true. Number one, we see first of all that Jesus was discovered by women. Look, imagine for a moment that you're an ancient Near Eastern writer. You decide that you're going to sit down and make up a story about a man who rose from the dead, even though you know for a fact that he didn't actually do it. You are lying. Okay, But you want your story to sound as compelling as possible. Why? Well, because, it needs, because you want to sort of get your movement up off the ground. So here's my question. Why would you have women be the one who first discovered Jesus? Look, it's no mystery the fact, the fact that in that time, women reviewed as second-class citizens. Their testimony was not even acceptable in a court of law. I think it's one of the reasons why the disciples don't actually believe them at first in verses 10 and 11 when they get there, because it's coming from the mouth of all things, a woman. But for our purposes, we're kind of left with this question. If you were going to make up something, again, that you knew was a lie, why would you bring in the least credible people to be the first one who discovered it? Well, could it be that that fact would would sort of remove some sense of credibility from your story? Of course it would. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have reasoned this way, that the most natural explanation to help us account for having reported in this way is that the authors were reporting facts, not made-up stories. You know, otherwise, the legend just doesn't sell very well, does it? Secondly, Jesus' resurrection was recorded very early. Look, we know for a fact that Christianity began to spread throughout Palestine, that the biggest claim that those people were making was about Jesus' resurrection. And it was the central tenet of these early Christian documents that were written, what, 20 to 30 years after Jesus had died and claimed to be risen again. Now look, if you're making a story up, do you realize how risky that is? Look, imagine this for a moment. Let's say that I would like to start a cult in Oxford, Mississippi, just for grins and giggles, right? Right? And I base it upon the teachings of someone that I claim lived about 25 years ago in Oxford. And one day he was killed on the steps of the courthouse on the square by his political opponents. But three days later, over off on Jefferson Avenue over here, he rises from the grave and is seen by 500 people after he does so. So, how well do you think my little movement's gonna get off the ground? when you realize that there are people sitting in this room who were here in Oxford in the early 80s and could have easily come up and said, "Uh, I don't know exactly what that pastor at uh, Christ Press in Oxford is talking about, but that never happened. My little movement would have trouble getting off the ground, you would think, wouldn't it? Right? Um, In other words, if there were so many people around who could be eyewitnesses against the claim, then how did it take off? Which brings me to my third thing to consider, and that is that the Jesus movement spread with a lot of speed. Look, Jesus' followers kept the resurrection at the top of their list to discuss, and if the resurrection was so poorly attested, then how do you account for the fact of how quickly it spread throughout the Roman world? With so many people alive, you would have thought that Christianity would have remained in this little small, kind of weird enclave of people in pa- Palestine at the time. But here's the deal. It is not disputed that Christianity did just the opposite. It spread throughout the entire Roman Empire like wildfire. How do you account for that popularity? And the truth is, there were no substantive arguments brought against the credibility of these reports because the arguments didn't exist. It makes the most sense out of the facts that we, facts that we have that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Tim Keller actually says that the burden of proof for the resurrection is actually not completely on just the Christian. In one of his books, he says this: He goes, It's not enough to simply believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's not enough. You must then come up with an historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. How do we get here? <laughs> If it got as big and as, and as powerful as it did in as quick and short a time as it did with plenty of people that could have disputed it, how did we get here? Hmm. Within three or four hundred years, it had toppled the Roman Empire. How do you account for that advance? From a pure historian's perspective, the Bible is saying to us, all attempts to do so are defied by the evidence. Number four, Jesus' followers are dubious at first. Look, think this through. If you're wanting to start a movement, based upon a lie about your fallen teacher rising from the dead, why would you have the earliest leaders of that movement doubting the story and not believing it so early on? I mean, why would you have your present leaders, the people who actually were leading while these documents were being written, be so doubtful and just incredulous that any of this could actually happen? Remember, these were the men through whom these stories would come. Why would they be willing to paint such an unflattering picture of themselves about their own doubt? Why would you make yourself look look bad? Well, here's the answer to that. Because it actually happened. (laughs) Because that's what you did. From from an historian's perspective, this is just a gem. Because when an author is willing to make themselves look bad, it sort of takes out the opportunity for self-interest in their reporting. Does that make sense? When they're willing to make themselves look bad? So much so that John Rogers, former dean of Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry, says this. He goes, this is the sort of data that historians of antiquity drool over. Why? Because it's credible. It's believable and therefore compelling. Number five, Jesus's tomb was lost. (laughs) You ever thought about this? You know, every commentator brings up the fact of how weird it is that archaeologists don't know which tomb it was that Jesus was buried in. Uh, there's not a whole lot that has sort of preoccupied the scientific community in our day than archaeological verification of historical events. You have all these oceans of research that are poured into verifying stories that were passed down from antiquity, using these techniques to investigate the original landscape of what occurred. But think about it. Today you can visit the tomb of almost every single major historical figure that started political movements or religious movements or, or even cultural movements. There's just something deep inside of us that kind of wants to hold on to people's final resting places. <laughs> and so historians are left with another shattering question. How did early Christians lose the tomb? It's a big deal. <laughs> like if you go to Palestine today, you can't go see Jesus' tomb. You can see one that we think might have looked like it, but you can't see the one. What could, how could you account for the fact that they would lose something that was such a potentially powerful artifact to bolster the faith of the earliest believers. Unless the earliest believers didn't think he was there. They knew he wasn't there because it was central to everything he said that he would be resurrected. The only thing that makes sense. Six, Jesus' resurrection, or actually any resurrection for that matter, was surprising, shocking. There's a very interesting story that's told in the gospel of Mark. You get this little detail uh, when Mark tells the story of when Jesus goes up on the mountain to with his disciples and he is transfigured and starts to glow with light. You remember this? It's a really weird story. Like Elijah and Moses show up on the mountain. Crazy. Go back and read it. Mark chapter nine. And after this event, we find that Jesus actually is getting much more um, transparent about what the real nature of his mission is. He starts talking about the fact that he's going to go and die and raise from the dead, (laughs) And Mark says that when the disciples were on their way down the mountain, they were discussing among themselves what this rising from the dead might mean. They had no idea, and N.T. Wright makes this point, that there were no historical parallels in the ancient Near Eastern world to have your fallen leader rise from the dead. There were no popular myths that people would have believed to draw upon that and steal it to bring it into Christianity. It just didn't exist. Because here's the deal. You'll have a lot of people that will look at these stories and they'll think to themselves, well, less you know, primitive people, they lived with kind of a superstitious worldview that, you know, that made rising from the dead plausible. <laughs> and you got guys like N.T. Wright being like, no, <laughs> it was just as weird for someone to rise from the dead you know, 2,000 years ago as it would be today. So how could you have these people, peasants at best, make up the resurrection? Look, here's my point. It defies logical, historical credibility to come up with an explanation for the pervasiveness of Christianity without a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You come up with an explanation. Because I'm telling you, when you try, you'll find yourself working against the evidence, not with it. And so here's the question. What would it do to you? How would it change you if this actually happened? How would it, what would it do inside of you? A number of years ago, I got a chance to take a trip to um, Shiloh National Park, the, the, the historical battlefield, and do a tour there. And for those of you who know the history of the, of the battle, there was, on the first day, uh, a hot spot uh, of just death and destruction that came to be known as the Hornet's Nest, just beyond a sunken road where thousands of people died in one day. And it's fascinating to go take that tour, especially with a good storyteller who tells you about what happened. And you feel, as it were, almost the the haunted nature of the ground. Why? Because when you realize that kind of death actually happened here, it just moves you on the inside. And so here's the question. If this really happened, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then what must I do? What must my life really be like if that actually happened? Brings me to my second point. And that is not just that the resurrection is true, but that the resurrection is moving. Look, one of my reasons that I want to go through this is because I'm always trying to deal with an objection that people think that you have to check your sense of history and fact at the door in order to become a Christian. And we live in this sort of vague sense of just like, well, the Christ life within us. It's literal. But my mass point, but even that's a little bit unnerving because after 25 years of campus ministry, I found that it was fascinating To talk to this next generation who would say, all right, whatever. Uh, Jesus died. He rose again from the dead. Cool. Sounds freaky, but got it. I'm down with that. So what? Okay. But here's the problem. That's not thinking the resurrection through. If this man died and rose again from the dead, there are some profoundly... Disturbing reactions we have to have from it because if jesus is raised from the dead then my intellectual objections about his existence They don't matter You know the the question of the problem of evil doesn't matter My problems with how to reconcile evolution with the bible. They don't matter my philosophical objections that i've dreamed up They don't matter if this guy rose from the dead. I have to listen to him It's inexorable. When a man rises from the dead, you have to listen to that guy. Actually, you'd be convinced if anyone rose from the dead. It would just be sheer intellectual raw force if it happened. But if it did, then suddenly it has to demote every other objection that it might bring to Christianity. I wonder they spent so much time talking about it? Why? Because no one has ever done this before. Yes, there's a couple people in the Bible who were raised from the dead, the stories tell us. But guess what? They all died again. Jesus didn't. He's the only one who's ever done that. So this is the encouragement to you as you start here. To begin with this question, did he rise from the dead? Investigate it. Look into it. Disprove it if you can. Because if you can't, (laughs) then you've got some serious reconciling to do with your life. And so do I. But my premise, though, this morning on the second point is that's actually not enough. Um... Let's finish where we started. Why am I crying at the end of Apollo 13? Seriously. Why do certain moments, stories move me so consistently? Because I don't think the historical fact actually is enough. It could maybe get us in the ballpark, but it really can't engage me with this whole life commitment that Jesus is wanting me to engage in. We opened up our discussion with Tolkien, but what you may not know is that Tolkien was actually very close friends with C.S. Lewis. Uh, They were contemporaries at the school they were teaching at at the time. Tolkien was actually the one who led Lewis to the Lord. Uh, One warm summer evening in uh, September of 1931, Lewis and Tolkien end up in their room having a discussion with a guest lecturer named Hugo Dyson. And while they're there, Lewis was trying to explain to Tolkien that he just didn't understand why he had to embrace all this living and dying and rising again. Why why could that possibly be important? And what Tolkien started to do is he said, he he said, Jack, Jack, friends called him Jack. He's like, Jack, tell me about the mythologies that you spend so much time studying. You love those stories, don't you? The old Norse gods that you teach every day in all of your classes. Have you ever been moved by them? Have you ever had them kind of take you over and take your breath away at the heroism and the beauty and the passion that comes within them? He would say, you know what? Those stories really can't land in your heart if they don't point to an ultimate story, to an ultimate myth. <laughs> but a myth, it's actually a fact. And the sort of conversation was so impactful to Lewis that he wrote an essay later on called Myth Became Fact. Go read it this afternoon. In one line in there, he says this, by becoming fact, it doesn't cease to be a story. And that's the miracle. I suspect that men, he's talking about himself, by the way, have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from the stories that they did not believe were true than even from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the story, though fact it has become, with the same imaginative embrace that we accord to all good stories. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. Do you see what Lewis is saying? He said, because the gospel is a fact, those stories that so often move us and bring us to tears, what they do is they're just, they're sort of vibrating a little, what Tolkien would call a bass string inside of our hearts. But he sits with Lewis this night and he goes, but Lewis, there's only one thing that'll actually pluck that string, that'll make it sing. And that's if there's an ultimate you catastrophe (laughs) that God actually came into earth that he actually brought that out and it's the story of the gospel it's the only thing that moves us look here's the point all other stories that move you every single day are just pointing to that from the ugly duckling that turns out to be a swan to the to the beauty who gives up all of her happiness to be in the arms of the beast They're all making us long for something more. And it doesn't matter where you heard the story. You might've been sitting on your mother's lap as a baby. You you might've been in that back room of the beacon. If you're one of those old guys that are back there, you know who you are. You might be a college student sitting in a darkened theater uh, or or, or a housewife who's, you know, binging on another fantastic Netflix thriller. But somewhere, something struck you. There was something about the story that, that, that grabbed you, it thrilled you, it surprised you. And in the flash of that moment, you forgot how hard it was to be alive. You were caught up, lost in the story. (laughs) But it ended sadly though, didn't it? Because bedtime was coming, you had to go to bed. The specter of death still hung over you even after you left the beacon. You still had exams next week. There's still laundry to be done, but it doesn't matter (laughs) because the message of Easter is that Jesus resurrection is a story which can pluck that string of your whole heart in such a way to make it never stop reverberating and vibrating with joy. That's the resurrection. (laughs) And you've been hearing it in echoes all your life. You just didn't know. That's the great story that all the other stories point. And because it's true, because it's true, there really is a beauty who kisses the beast and heals him. There really is a strong Hercules who crushes his enemies. There really is a prince who's coming to rescue the maiden in distress. There really is a king who will return to pride rock and restore it to its former glory there really is a superman who will swoop in at just the right moment and powerfully save you've been hearing them all in other words there's actually only really one hero <laughs> and that is the crucified and resurrected jesus of nazareth so the question for you this morning is it possible that that story might pluck that heartstring in you let's pray And Lord Jesus, we know enough about our hearts and our lives to know that that will not happen unless you intervene. And so this morning we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and sing that song, flood our minds with all of the stories that we've ever been told that moved us and make us begin to realize that you were calling to us through them all and that we finally have found even this morning in the scripture that was read, (laughs) the end of our searching, we found what it was all for. And because we've done so, we might walk out of this place in a way in which we weren't before we came in. So would you do that by your Holy Spirit this morning? Make it to be so, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.